Hello, my dear friends. This is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby coming to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, and this is the Torah 101 podcast. I am so delighted and honored to be your host, and I want to let the audience know that I work for an organization called Torch, and we do wonderful work in the space of Jewish education and Jewish outreach here in Houston, Texas, but really via the podcasts and our other digital offerings We really try to make an impact globally, and thank God, with the help of the Almighty, we've had tremendous success hitherto. You are listening to the Torah 101 podcast, which I like to call an intellectual's introduction to Torah, because we address the fundamental questions about Torah and faith and religion in a way that I like to think of as being very advanced and very rigorous, and I appreciate that you are joining us for this journey, but I want to let you know that in addition to the Torah 101 podcast, we also have many other podcasts available, and I urge you to go to your podcast provider and put in my last name, Walby, and browse and peruse through the many offerings that we have here from Torch. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you for your support, and if you want to help the great work of Torch succeed, visit our website, torchweb.org, view the cornucopia of activities that we offer, and give us your support. We deeply appreciate it. As always, my email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. We have been discussing principle number eight of the 13 principles of faith. If you've been counting, I have. It's been 17 episodes, and we've talked about the history of the Torah, and the components of the Torah, and the oral Torah, and the written Torah, and the Talmud of the Mishnah, and the Kabbalah, and the Halacha, and the Agadita, and the Rabbinic Law, and the imperative of Torah study, and the veracity of Torah. We've discussed many angles of principle number eight, the divinity of Torah. Now it's time to get to principle number nine. I think will be much shorter. I hope to get it done in one session. Now, it's important to orient ourselves where we are in the 13 principles. As we mentioned way back when we started, the 13 principles of faith that the Ramam codifies for us are really comprised into three different sections. You have five, four, and four. The first section is the five principles that orient around the Jewish definition of God. We have to believe in God. Well, what does that mean? The Ramam educates us and gives us five principles related to that central idea. And then you have the middle section, which is principles number six, seven, eight, and nine, which deal with the idea of Torah, the Almighty communicating to us. Number six was prophecy. Number seven is the unique nature of mosaic prophecy. Number eight was the idea that the Torah is divine. And number nine is that Torah is immutable, and unchangeable. When we move on to principle number 10, please God, we're going to enter the last stretch of the 13 principles, which orient around reward and punishment. And And there are going to be four different principles around that central idea. But now we're up to principle number nine, and that is the Torah is immutable, the Torah is unchangeable. The Torah that we got from God is the Torah, and that's going to be like that forever. We, for example, don't call the Torah, or even the Bible, the Jewish Bible, we don't call it the Old Testament. We call it the only Testament. It's the only Torah never to be replaced, never to be, quote-unquote, upgraded, never to be demoted, never to be swapped out for any new version. So today we're going to read the Rambam. It's a very short principle in his words, and we're going to elaborate on what it means and what are the consequences. Principle number nine says the Rambam, and that is the formulation of Torah, meaning that the Torah that we have comes from the Almighty and does not come from anyone else, which is, again, similar to principle number eight. And onto this Torah, we cannot add, nor can we subtract. Not in the written Torah and not in the oral Torah. It quotes a verse in Deuteronomy. You should not add nor subtract to the Torah. 
And he tells us that he already spoke about this in other places. So this is the final principle of the middle section of 13 principles, the divinity of Torah, that the Torah that we have is the only one that we've got. We cannot add nor subtract to it. And next, we're going to move on to the subjects of eschatology, reward and punishment, as we mentioned. What happens after you die? Reincarnation. The journey of the soul after the departure of this world. Messiah, the afterlife, resurrection of the dead, Olam Abba. I'm really excited for that. But now let's focus on principle number nine. So it's telling us that the Torah is immutable. It cannot be changed not by humans. Moreover, it will not be changed by God. So the way all the commentaries explain this Rambam is that the Torah is, is fixed, it's unchangeable, it's immutable, and it won't be changed not by God, and it cannot be changed by us. And the Rambam elsewhere in his vast writings tells us more about this idea, and that is that the commandments that we have are forever and ever. We cannot add, we cannot change, we cannot subtract, and quotes verses to this effect, that the Torah that we have, we are commanded to do it. It is binding forever. And suppose there was a prophet that arose that sought to change the Torah. Quotes another verse, Torah is not in the heavens. No longer can a prophet come and say, oh, I went to the heavens and the Almighty communicated to me a new version of Torah or a new addendum to Torah or a new addition or a new subtraction for Torah. No, the Torah is no longer in the heavens and therefore it's not possible to have a Moses 2.0. And therefore, by definition, someone who tries to change the Torah is a false prophet and would be executed. So if you have someone, the Ram tells us, regardless if that person is Jewish or a Gentile, and does a miracle, and does a wonder, and establishes their credentials as ostensibly a legitimate prophet, and then they say that the Almighty sent them to add a new mitzvah, or to deduct one mitzvah, or to explain one mitzvah in a way that differs from the way Moshe told us, or to tell us that, oh, there was a mitzvah, but that was only temporary. That was only for a specific time and place in history, but now things are different. That person is a false prophet. They have come to try to repudiate the prophecy of Moshe, and they are executed. If so, says the Rambam, what is the point of prophecy post-Moses? If a prophet cannot alter, cannot tamper with, disable, or destroy the Torah. What's the point of having prophets post-Moshe? And in fact, Moshe himself says that you will have subsequent prophets after me. He tells us there are two reasons why we would have prophets. Not to add to the Torah, not to subtract from the Torah, but to encourage and coax and urge and exhort the nation to abide, to adhere, to obey to the Torah of Moshe. In fact, the Ram quotes the very last of the prophets, Malachi, who says, this is at the very, very end of Scripture, Zichru Torah's Moshe Avdi. Remember, hearken to the Torah of Moshe, the Torah given to us by Moshe, the Almighty's servant. So the first responsibility of a prophet is to encourage the nation to obey and cleave to the Torah of Moshe, not to amend it, not to change it in any way, but to adhere to it fastidiously, number one. Number two, the second requirement of prophets is to instruct us on matters that are not relevant to Torah. So he gives us a bunch of examples, to go to this place or to not go to this place, to make a war or to not make a war, to build a fence, to build a wall, or to not build a wall. So when a prophet gives us commandments, instructions that are not related to Torah, we are obligated to listen to them. Now, the Ram tells us that a prophet is allowed to temporarily suspend a certain mitzvah. 
And the canonical example of that, of course, is Elijah on Mount Carmel when he's having the standoff with the Nevi'e Habal, with the prophets of the Baal, the prophets of the idols. He brings a sacrifice outside of Jerusalem, which is against Torah law, but he suspends that law temporarily because of a greater, larger need. And the Ram tells us, the Ram codifies for us, and we may have spoken about this in the past, that a prophet is allowed to suspend a law of Torah temporarily, provided it's temporary, it's not permanent. If they try to suspend the law of Moshe permanently, they're executed, and provided it's not idolatry. If it is any other mitzvah, and it's temporary, we are required to listen to the prophet the prophet comes, Elijah comes and says, hey, now we can offer a sacrifice on Mount Carmel, even though it's not in Jerusalem, and even though Jerusalem was selected, and therefore we could, under normal circumstances, bring sacrifices nowhere else, this is the exception, temporarily, for a specific reason. And he even says, if you were to ask Elijah on Mount Carmel, how could you go against the Torah? The Torah says you cannot bring sacrifices outside of the place that God has chosen, namely Jerusalem, after it is selected, Elijah would not have told you that, oh, that's not relevant anymore. Oh, I'm able to override the ruling of Moses. Rather, he would say that this is a temporary exception based upon the urgent need to be able to contradict the prophets of the Baal. So that's the general idea. Torah is fixed immutable, unchangeable, and a prophet cannot change it, maybe temporarily suspend a certain law, provided it's not idolatry for a specific reason, but the Torah of Moshe triumphs over all, and no prophet can change that. That's number one. Number two, the Ram also tells us that we cannot claim that God changed it. And in fact, he tells us that if someone says like the Nazarenes and the Hagarites, i.e. the Christians and the Muslims. I thought it was a funny name to call the Muslims, from Hagar, Hagarites, that the Almighty gave the Torah to the Jews. But then he changed it. Then he replaced it. Then it was superseded. And now there's a, quote-unquote, New Testament, or the prophecy of Musa was true, but now there's the final prophecy of Muhammad, right? That claim, says the Rambam, is something which is against Torah. It's someone who is questioning this principle, and that person loses their portion in the world to come. And the idea in general is that there was one period in history that we got Torah. There was a direct link that Moshe had with the Almighty, and for 40 years, he was able to draw Torah down from heaven. Once Torah was here, It's no longer in heaven, and we got it all. We have the entirety of Torah. Now, of course, there are secrets in Torah that we don't know that we could still discover within the framework of the Mosaic Torah. But that period in history is unique. It is a once-in-history phenomenon. Now we have all of Torah, and there are no updates that are possible. Now, the Ramam, elsewhere in his vast writings, he addresses another aspect of this idea. And that is, well, what about the prophecies and the Torah and the mitzvos that preceded Moshe? Abraham had some mitzvos. Isaac, we're told, had some mitzvos. Jacob, even Noah, Adam, the seven Noahide laws. There are mitzvos that preceded this unique period of Torah that preceded Sinai, and what is the nature of those mitzvos? So he makes a beautiful distinction, tells us, nowhere before Moshe do we have a prophet who claimed that God spoke to him with an instruction to command that mitzvah onward. Even Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, all prophets, Shem and Aver, Noah, Methuselah, Chanoch, none of them said to the people, oh, the Almighty sent me to speak to you, to communicate to you, to command you in a given mitzvah. Rather, what they got was an isolated prophecy, 
and they shared perhaps some of the general principles and ideas and precepts and tenets and ideals with their countrymen, but there was no direct instruction from God, go command the people saying the following is obligatory and mandatory for them to abide by. Abraham, of course, was the great monotheist, the great influence that changed the world. And he told the people and he convinced the people and he persuaded the people and he debated the people and he conveyed the idea that the world has one creator and everything that exists besides for God was created by God. And to worship the idols and the images is futile and silly. Go to the source, go to God. And he presented logical proofs and he tugged at their heartstrings with emotional proofs and he benefited them by connecting them to God. But he did not come with a mandate. The Almighty instructed me to tell you such and such. So for example, circumcision. The Almighty gives Abraham a mitzvah to circumcise himself and all the males in his household. He doesn't go around and spread that to others. He doesn't convey that mitzvah elsewhere. It's for him and him alone, him and his family, to circumcise. And that is the nature of all prophets before Moshe. And the prophets that come after Moshe, the ones that succeeded him, we mentioned earlier, they are exhorting the nation to guard and observe the Torah of Moshe, and to foretell the good that comes for those who obey by the Torah of Moshe, and to foretell and prognosticate of the evils that will befall those that disobey the Torah of Moshe, and to encourage us to believe in this principles of Moshe forever. But nowhere do you have, not before Moshe, not after Moshe, the kind of Torah that exists by Moshe, where he is commanded directly by God, go speak to the people, saying, Vaidaber Hashem, Moshe Lemor, God spoke to Moshe, go tell others the Torah, go command, I give you the mandate to command Torah to your people. That's the idea of this mitzvah. Now, I want to parse it out and talk about the general concept of this principle. What are the scriptural proofs? What are the logical ideas? that are the basis of this principle. And then I want to expand out to deal with some of the problems or some of the questions that this principle raises. So first of all, let's begin with Scripture. There are many indications in Scripture that this is the Torah that we've got. So of course, you mentioned earlier, the Torah is no longer in the heavens. The Torah is here. What the Almighty wanted to convey via Torah, he did via Moshe. Moreover, this got kick-started via the Sinai revelation. And we are told explicitly in Scripture that the Sinai revelation is a once-in-history phenomenon. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 32. Moshe makes a very bold claim. Look at all of history. Look, since creation, since the very beginning until the very end, from one end of the world to the other end of the world, find me a parallel where the Almighty spoke to an entire nation as he did to you. Has any people heard the voice of God speaking out of a fire as you have and survived? There is an explicit verse that the sign of revelation which kick-started the entire era, the entire period of the conveyance of the Torah, that is a once-in-history phenomenon. Moreover, another verse, Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 28, these mitzvos that were revealed to us forever and ever, we must obey by them forever and ever. We must do the words of Torah it is unchangeable. Now, there's a deep point here that I want to convey. If the Torah was ever true, it remains the only Torah that we've got. 
meaning that replacement theology, oh, the Jews had Torah and it was legit, but they, for whatever reason, didn't live up to the standards and then it was replaced. It was replaced by the Christians, it was replaced by the Muslims, it was updated, it was upgraded, maybe even the Jewish heritage we could throw into that mix, the Sadducees and the various Hellenists or even the Karaites, that there was a version of Torah and now it's been upgraded or swapped out for something else. That claim is inherently self-contradictory because the Torah itself says that this is the only one that you're going to get. Thus, if that was ever true, it remains true today. You can't say the Torah was true, but it's no longer true when the Torah, if it was true at any point, itself declares, this is it, Adolam, forever and ever, this is the binding will of God. Now, on a deeper kind of philosophical level, based upon some of the ideas that we've spoken about in the past, it's also quite logical. We say that the world is deeply and intimately connected to Torah. So you just tell us that the Almighty used the Torah as the blueprint for the world. Meaning that the version of Torah that we have is as fixed as the version of the world that we have. If you can imagine the laws of physics being altered, that is akin on a logical, philosophical level to the notion of changing the Torah. The Talmud says this explicitly. The Talmud, the book of Erevin 13a, records a discussion about a scribe and the importance of the scribe not altering a letter in the Torah. And what it says is, that if you deduct one letter from the Torah, or if you add a letter to the Torah, which again is a reference to a mistake, when someone erroneously alters the letters of the Torah, but the Talmud nevertheless says, you are destroying the world. Because if we tamper with the Torah, in effect, we're tampering with the entity that is the blueprint of the world. And if that gets corrupted then the world is done for. The Torah is the blueprint for the world, and it is fixed and immutable and unchangeable. And if it was changed even erroneously, then the world can be destabilized. Thus, the eternal immutability of Torah is patent from its relationship with the world. Now, the Torah being permanently fixed is also syllogistically logical from the connection between God and Torah. So there's many statements to this effect, and we've spoken about them also in the past, about how the Torah is inseparable from God, and how when we got the Torah, we got God with it. And the best way to connect to the Almighty is via His will. And there's a famous line in Jewish literature, Hu Uritsono Chad, the Almighty and His will are one and inseparable, meaning that the Torah is a manifestation of God. And therefore, just as we know, and it's been established already, that God doesn't change, God is one. Similarly, it will be likewise preposterous to assume that Torah would change. That's the idea in general. The Torah. The Torah is immutable. But there are some points that need clarification. So, for example, there is a vast body, a robust corpus of rabbinic law. How is rabbinic law not in violation of this principle? How is that not adding to the Torah? Number one. Moreover, what is this idea that God won't change the Torah? How do we know that God won't change the Torah? So that, truthfully, we addressed earlier. He himself says it, and it is indeed logical. 
But there are some obvious questions that are raised. There are some really interesting comments in the Midrash about things that are going to happen in the future. So, for example, there is a line in the Midrash that says that in the future, the festivals will be abolished. Well, the festivals and the laws of the festivals are featured in the Torah. They are mitzvahs in the Torah. How can the Midrash say, in contradistinction to this principle, that in the future, we're not going to have all the festivals. We'll have Purim, we'll have Yom Kippur, but we're not going to have, let's say, implied from that, Sukkot or Shavuot. How can you say that? How can you envision a future world where the laws of the Torah are not as they always were? Moreover, there seems to be a Midrash, even though it's not featured in our version of Midrash, but it is quoted by many very reputable sources that talk about a future time, in the future, when exactly that is, is a great mystery. In the future, the pig, the symbol of a non-kosher animal, will become kosher. So wait a minute. The Torah says the pig is not kosher. That is actually explicit in Scripture. How can it be kosher in the future? Or how can the Midrash say, in opposition to this principle, that the Torah will change we're told that the Torah will not change. So the idea, again, as we mentioned earlier, in general, is that what we got from Moshe is classified as Torah. The Torah has 613 mitzvos, and all of them came from Moshe's prophecy. So we have, for example, our canon, 24 books of Tanakh, 24 books of the Jewish Bible, the first five, the Pentateuch, as they're called, the Chamish Chumshe Torah, the five books of Moses, they contain all 630 mitzvos. The other 19 books contain exactly zero of these 630 mitzvos. Now, maybe they reference them, they encourage the adherence to them, but in none of them do we find a new mitzvah that's not featured in the Torah. In fact, the Talmud actually says, that had the Jewish people not sinned, you would have only six books in the canon. Not 24, you'd have six books. The five books of Moses, Bereshus, Genesis, Exodus, Shmos, Leviticus, Vayikra, Bamidbar, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Devarim, and you'd have one extra book. The book of Joshua, the Sefer Yehoshua, the first of the successive the ensuing 19 books, because that contains the division of the land, which parts of the land of Israel, land of Canaan, are given to which tribes, which cities are apportioned to every tribe. If not for the Jewish people sitting, all you'd have is these six books. Meaning that the reason why we have those other 18 books, it's only as a result of us not being perfect and therefore needing some more encouragement from the prophets, needing the stories that happened as a result of us going a bit awry, etc. But the whole mitzvot, the Torah, the religion, was given to us completely via Moshe. And again, this is not a one-time event. Over the course of 40 years, we have this continuous prophecy of Moshe, and in fact, he's even able to ask God questions that arise. So for example, the daughters of Tzlavchod, we're going to read about this in a few weeks, the daughters asked a question that Moshe apparently doesn't know the answer to, and he goes and asks God, and God gives him the answer. What to do with the gatherer of twigs on Shabbos? We read that a couple of weeks ago. What about the people who missed the opportunity to have Pesach on the first time? They want to have a makeup date. They want to have a rain check. For Pesach number two, a question that Moshe approaches God with. That period ends when Moshe passes. That's it. We have everything, and we're basically on our own, and a prophet is not allowed to go to God and ask for an answer to an uncertainty. The Torah has been taken completely from the heavens. And even the mitzvos whose roots preceded Sinai, we observe them only because Moshe told us. There's a very 
clinical Rambam to this effect regarding the mitzvah of not eating from the sciatic nerve. Now, pronunciation sidebar, I had a dear friend of mine correct me. I used to pronounce it as sciatica, which apparently refers to a pain in the sciatic nerve. And the correct terminology is the sciatic nerve, that's what we're not allowed to eat. And that is, of course, a result of the story that happened with Jacob and this very mysterious man who, our sages tell us, is the angel of Esau. Jacob's alone and they startle the whole night and he gives him a blessing as featured in the book of Genesis. But in general, if I mispronounce something or if I use a word incorrectly, please email me, rabbiwalbejima.com, and let me know. So why do we have this prohibition not to eat from the static nerve? You would say, well, because of Jacob struggling with the angel the whole night. Is that so? Well, the Mishnah says, not like that. The Mishnah says that the reason why we don't eat from that part of the animal is because, it's because that's what was said by Sinai. And the Rambam in his commentary to that particular Mishnah, the book of Hulin, tells us, Visim Libcham, place your heart, pay careful attention to this important principle that is featured in this Mishnah. It says that the sciatic nerve is prohibited to us because it was said so by Sinai many generations after Jacob. We only do the mitzvahs of the Almighty because they were told to us by Moshe, not because of what Hashem told to the previous prophets. The reason why we don't eat Avram and Achai, we don't eat a limb from a living animal, it's not because it was said to Adam or to Noah, it's because it was told to us by Moshe at Sinai over the course of those 40 years. The reason why we circumcise is not because Abram was told to circumcise, because Moshe told us to circumcise. The reason why we don't eat from the static nerve is not because of what happened to Jacob, rather because we were commanded to do so by Moshe. All Tariyag, all Session 13 mitzvos, were all told to Moshe at Sinai, and that is why we obey them. That is with respect to what preceded Sinai. Rabbinic law is what comes after Sinai, and it is also distinct from the core Torah. And the Ramah himself already asked this question, wait a minute, the Torah says you can't add, you can't subtract. How do the rabbis come and say, you cannot play with a pen on Shabbat? A rabbinic law, a rabbinic edict, a rabbinic decree. They're adding to the laws of the Torah. The Torah says, do not cook a kid in its mother's milk. Lo sevashel gedi b'chalev imo. What does that mean? Well, it means, from a Torahitic perspective, Moshe told us, this verse is said three times, once with respect to not cooking it, one with, once with respect to not benefiting from it, and one with respect to not consuming it. So from a Torah perspective, what is prohibited? What's prohibited to us is to not eat meat or beef that is cooked with dairy. That is prohibited to us from a Torah perspective. What about poultry and dairy? That is permitted from a Torah perspective. Come along the sages and they say, we're making a new edict. We're prohibiting poultry and dairy. And therefore, what would happen if a court comes and says beef or venison and dairy is permitted? They are deducting from Torah. And what if a court comes and they say that poultry and dairy is prohibited from the Torah? Not a rabbinic prohibition, not a rabbinic decree, not a rabbinic law. It's prohibited from Torah. Then they would be adding to Torah. But if they say the following, poultry and dairy is permitted for the Torah, but we prohibited it based upon the concept of a decree. We're worried that if we don't prohibit it, then people will eventually come to violate the Torah law. And he gives an example. He says, someone will say, well, Poultry is permitted, 
And therefore, undomesticated animals, which are not explicit in the verse, are also permitted. And someone else will say, well, you could have even domesticated animals meat mixed with dairy, because it only says, don't cook her kid, don't cook her goat. But what about a cow? What about a bison? What about some other bovine? That will be okay. And a third person will come and say, well, even the meat of a goat is permitted, provided that the milk comes from a different animal. Because it says, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. It's got to be from the same species. It's got to be goat milk. Only goat milk is prohibited. But if it is cow's milk with goat meat, then it would be permitted. And then another person will say, well, it says, don't cook a kid in its mother's milk. It's got to be specifically the milk of the mother. This is what the sages were worried about. Because meat and poultry kind of look similar, and it's something which does allow people to start to develop their own theories and to try to minimize the actual Torah law, come along the sages and they make a decree. And they make it very clear. This is not Torah law. This is rabbinic law. This is a rabbinic fence to ensure that a Torah law will not be violated. And therefore, it's not a problem. It's not a violation of adding to Torah when it's clear that this is a rabbinic fence, a rabbinic decree, and not an addition to Torah law. And the Ramam, again, speaks about this in many different places. If someone says this is commanded by the Almighty, when it's really a rabbinic decree, that would be a violation of this principle. But if they say, you know, we have the rabbinic decrees and rabbinic laws and rabbinic edicts and even rabbinic mitzvot like to celebrate Purim and Hanukkah and to light candles on Shabbat and say blessings. And you make it very clear, this is a rabbinic law. And the reason why we do it is because we want to remember the Almighty's goodness to us and we want to laud and praise the Almighty. And you make it very clear that this is a rabbinic mitzvah, then it's not a violation of Torah law. So that's kind of dealing with some of the central problems with this principle. The Torah is immutable and unchangeable. And if we add and change it in the ways that are codified to us in the Torah, we have to make it very clear that this is a rabbinic edict, this is a rabbinic decree, this is a rabbinic law, this is a rabbinic fence, this is a rabbinic mitzvah, but it's not tampering with the sanctity and sacrosanctedness of the 613. Now, the obvious subtext of this principle is that Christianity and Islam, the concept of supersessionism or replacement theology, is a bunch of bunk. Now, I don't want to descend into discussing comparative religion or engaging in polemics or to try to systematically discuss and debunk all the Christian textual and philosophical perversions and chicaneries. But instead, I want to focus on the flip side. And that is to say, well, what do we do with the sources in Jewish scripture or in Jewish, in Jewish literature that seem to imply the Torah is changeable to a certain extent? What do we do with the Midrash that talks about things in the future being very different or somewhat different than they are today, how do we understand that? Now, it's important to know, even if we assume that the Torah is changeable, that's not enough to legitimize Christianity and Islam. You don't need the Torah to be immutable to disprove Islam and Christianity. Why? Islam and Christianity can be disproven from a very different and more basic angle. Not like we're saying the Torah is forever immutable, rather that if we have a prophecy and a prophetic experience of the caliber of Moshe, you have a divine revelation, what would you need at a minimum to override that? You would need a second divine revelation, a second Sinai experience. So even if we just completely disregard this principle, 
there's a very basic question, a logical question that we would have to pose to anyone that wants to make the claim the Torah was superseded. Wait a minute, why would the Almighty give us the original Torah 1.0 with such fanfare, with such a national prophecy, with the sign of revelation, and then when he wants to undo it, doesn't have that same degree of prophecy? You'd need a Sinai 2.0 to override a Sinai version 1.0. And therefore, even if we assume this principle is not true, there is an impossible hurdle, just philosophically and logically, for the Christian and Islamic claim. Nevertheless, I think it behooves us to try to wrestle with this principle. If it is indeed true that the Torah is immutable, what do we do with the few sources that seem to imply otherwise? So let's start with the concept of the nullification of the festivals. So just let me make this clear. There really isn't a lot that we have to wrestle with. Primarily, there's those the two sources about the nullification of the festivals and the permission of the pig in the future. Nevertheless, let us discuss them. So there is a Midrash that is featured in several places that says the following. Kol HaMoadim, all the festivals, Asidimli Batal, will in the future be nullified, will be absolved, will be undone. However, the days of Purim will never be undone. We'll always celebrate Purim. Says Rabbi Lazar, even Yom HaKippurim, even Yom Kippur, will never be undone forever. And quotes a verse in scripture, and this will be for you, lechukas olam, to, for an eternal covenant, you can never change it. So this Midrash implies, doesn't say so explicitly, but implies in the future we won't actually observe the festival. Again, the word that it uses, it will not be nullified. Or it will be nullified, which implies that we won't actually observe it. So first of all, as we spoke about in the past, this Midrash is not said in a halachic context. It doesn't say that there are mitzvos that won't be observed in the future, won't be fulfilled in the future. It also doesn't give us any clear guidelines of what this futuristic world looks like. This is said in a agadic context, which means that it mustn't be understood simply. And again, if you look at the range of commentaries, none of them have the opinion that this Midrash is saying that in the future there will be messages that won't be observed. So, for example, the Rashba. The Rashba is one of the giants of the medieval era of sages. He asks an obvious question on this Midrash. The Midrash says, well, Purim won't be nullified. A second opinion, oh, Yom Kippur won't either be nullified. Because the verse says about Yom Kippur that it's going to be an eternal covenant forever. So the Rashba asks an obvious question. Wait a minute. Other festivals, it says the same thing. And he quotes a verse in Exodus. That Pesach is something, the same exact words. You should guard this festival for your generations for an eternal covenant. Forever. How could you say that Yom Kippur is different because it has this verse when Pesach has the identical verse? And therefore, why is there a carve out? Oh, Yom Kippur will never be nullified when the same verse is applied to the festival of Pesach. And therefore, what he says is that when it means that a festival be nullified, it means that the people won't observe it. Not that the mitzvah won't be active, won't be mandatory. Rather, there's going to be times in our history where the nation will be less fastidious, less meticulous about observance of law, of Torah law. However, these things we will always stick to. The Almighty promises that our sins will not cause us to violate or to forget about these festivals. And then he adds, Yom Kippur, even for those who don't celebrate, it's still going to atone for them. And that's what this Midrash is talking about. 
And the other commentaries on this Midrash, they give different interpretations. So for example, one of the commentaries says that the future miracles of this future time, of this future era, will outshine the miracles of the festivals. And therefore, it won't be as significant. But again, no one makes the claim that it will not be observed that the mitzvahs will be discontinued. Others suggest that the future days will be so engorged with holiness, it will be hard to differentiate between festivals and regular days. But again, no one understands this midrash to say that any mitzvahs will be discontinued. Again, it's very hard to even suggest that's what the midrash means when the Torah itself says that you cannot add, you cannot subtract from the Torah. It's very hard to imagine that a midrash would say something in opposition to an explicit verse in Scripture. Now, with regards to the paid becoming kosher, I actually have never tasted it. The notion of eating it is quite nauseating to me. I have been reliably told that it is quite delicious from people who have eaten it. But I think it would be a very interesting development from the perspective of the kosher culinary community is it true that at some time in the future, the pig is going to become kosher? The Hebrew name for a pig is chazir, which means to return. It's going to return. It's going to become kosher. Is that true? And I think it's also noteworthy that the pig is almost the most symbolically unkosher animal. And wouldn't that be interesting if that specifically would be the non-kosher animal becomes kosher? So first of all, the source is actually not found in the Midrash that we have today. And there are those that quibble with the authenticity and veracity of this Midrash. But others suggest the following, which I found very interesting. The Torah says that the pig is not kosher. But it also gives us the reason why. To be a kosher animal, you have to have two signs that render you kosher. You have to have the split hooves and you have to have the fact that you chew your cud. The pig has one but not the other. The camel has the other but not the one. So the commentaries suggest that the pig will become kosher, but it will not be a violation of Torah law. Why? Because sometime in the future, whatever that is, sometime in this opaque futuristic world, the Almighty is going to change the nature of the pig. It will now chew its cud, and thus physiologically it will have both signs of the kosher animal, and indeed it will become kosher. Now, the way I like to look at this midrash is more metaphorical. So we know that the symbol of evil, if there was an animal, that is viewed as being the most non-kosher will be the pig. But also Esav, Jacob's twin brother, is always identified as a pig. And we're told elsewhere that in the future, Esav will be restored to the good graces of God and all evil will be fixed and all heresy will be stamped out And that's the nature of the Messianic era. Everyone's going to come back to God. And the way the Midrash kind of formulates that metaphorically is that the pig will become kosher, i.e. Esav, and all the evil will come back, so to speak, to faith. But no one, again, no reputable sources, makes the claim in opposition to this Midrash that laws of Torah can be changed. Do not add, do not subtract. We got the Torah once. We got it completely. Yes, there are carve-outs. There is a system. There is a way to add decrees, to add even new laws based upon the framework that we have from Moshe. And we have to be very clear. These are rabbinic laws, rabbinic edicts, rabbinic decrees, rabbinic mitzvos, and there are halachic ramifications for when something is of mosaic, Torahitic origin, when it is of rabbinic origin. So just the most obvious example, we say suffolk deoraisa lechomra. When there is a suffolk, when there's a doubt 
when it is a doubt in a matter of Torahitic origin, we're more stringent. And Safik derabanan lekula, and when it is a doubt of rabbinic origin, then we are more lenient. So in the Talmud and study of Jewish law, we always have to know, is a given law, is that of Torahitic origin? Did that come from Moshe? Or was that added by the rabbis that came after Moshe, by the teachers, by the Sanhedrin, by the courts that came after Moshe, as an edict, as a law? And we always have to have that in our head to know what to do in a case of doubt. But that's the ninth principle in general. Torah is immutable. It can change. It won't change. This is it. Yes, we can still discover insights into it, but it will never be swapped out for another corpus. And the aspect of that that is quite salient is that Christianity and Islam, replacement theology is totally illegitimate. Now, it's important for us to stress that when we get to the concept of Messiah, Messiah is about a universal movement back to monotheism. And there is a very important role that Christianity and Islam play, and the Ramah himself says that. There's a very important role that Christianity and Islam play in, so to speak, doing a lot of the mass movement of humanity back to faith. 2,000 years ago, the majority of the world were pagans. Today, paganism really doesn't exist, certainly not in the Western world. And that is largely thanks to the work of our cousins, of the Christians and the Muslims. But the role of Messiah is, so to speak, to fix it slightly, the Ram says. The Romans had in excess of 30,000 gods. The Christians have maybe three. The Muslims used to be pagans and idolaters, and now they are strict monotheists. So, in effect, they're doing a lot of the legwork, a lot of the mass movement stuff, and the role, the job of Messiah is to kind of finish it off and just make a slight amendment, slight adjustment to the developments, the positive developments that have happened in the monotheistic world in the last 2,000 years. That's, of course, something we're still anticipating. And we're going to talk about, please God, at great length when we get to those principles in the upcoming episodes. But that's it for principle number nine. I thank you all for listening. My email address is rabbiwalby at gmail.com. It is a great pleasure and a joy and a privilege to be talking to you from the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. I look forward to speaking again soon.